A note for our listeners. This chapter includes language some might consider offensive and content that could be disturbing. So please consider how you listen and with whom. If you or someone you know feels depressed and hopeless or is contemplating suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Help is available. I'm exhausted physically and emotionally when I walk in the door at my parents' house. They still live in southeastern Kansas. My mom and dad raised me and my sisters on a country road about an hour south of Fort Scott. Hello. Hey, honey. How are you? You caught me nibbling on something. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. I'm so glad you're here. How are you doing? Good. Where's dad? Hey, Dad, how are you? You're fine. It's good to see you. I go to give my dad a hug, but he's Uh, gross. Oh, you're sweaty. You're sweaty. Yeah, yeah, I'm sweaty. Yeah, I've been working. Somebody somebody works. I've been working on the tractor, but no choking. He's going to have to get the battery for the tractor. It's it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. What's for dinner? Uh, My dad has been out all afternoon clearing brush in the pasture. He goes to clean up. Mom and I head to the kitchen counter to talk. Walking into my parents' house feels like a break. I've been visiting people whose lives changed after the closing of Mercy Hospital, the only hospital in their small town. Some of their pain is directly related to the loss of the hospital. In other cases, it wasn't. Being home is comforting, and I get my mom's cooking. She makes these homemade egg noodles. It's basically just flour, eggs from our chickens, and a bit of salt. They go into a broth and double in size for a thick soup. My mom learned the recipe from her mom. You know why? Because they're cheap, they're easy, and they're filling. Who doesn't like homemade noodles? Both of my parents were born here in southeastern Kansas, and they didn't come from much. My dad grew up with only an outhouse until he joined the army. My mom was a teenage bride, They married after my dad got back from Vietnam. Neither of them had graduated from high school, but they found jobs and started a family. My dad worked at a metal manufacturing plant, making the steel rods that reinforce our nation's highways. My mom took care of intellectually disabled patients at the state hospital. She worked the night shift for more than a decade before moving to days. They did this for 40 plus years, slowly digging themselves out of poverty. We were really poor. <laughs> I like how you paused before saying that, like you weren't sure you, you wanted to say that on the microphone. <laughs> Sometimes you hate to tell people how poor you were. <laughs> so my family was poor growing up. Whether we had enough money to buy gas to drive into town was a regular question raised at the dinner table when I was a kid. I carried that lived experience with me while reporting about Fort Scott. It's hard to be uncomfortable in a place that's familiar. Pat Wheeler makes noodles just like my mom. Pat and her husband, Ralph, began our story, and now we're going to spend time with their grandson, Josh. Josh told me he struggles with what he calls his mental state. His part of their family's story points me to some of the health care that is desperately needed in rural America, but wasn't actually available at Mercy Hospital before it closed. I'm Sarah Jane Tribble. This is Where It Hurts, 
a new podcast from KHN and St. Louis Public Radio. Season one is No Mercy. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. On the day I went back to visit Josh, Walking through Pat and Ralph's door felt all wrong. Hello. Hello, anybody home? Pat? Hello, Pat, Josh, anybody home? Uh, I said I was coming back, so <laughs> I hope I'm not surprising you all. Who is it? I'm Sarah. Is Josh around? What the fuck is that? It's recording equipment. What? Should I follow you? Josh, where you at, man? I came back thinking Pat would be here. She's not. But I had talked with her about coming back to see Josh, too, so we could talk about the hospital, and I'm hoping to do that now. It would be nice to hear from someone who is young in this town. But instead of finding Josh, the first person I see when I walk in is, I think, Josh's friend. Oh, there's a lady here with some microphone up in the house. Uh, we've talked before, Josh. It's Sarah. I don't think she's bullshitting because... I'm totally recording right now. I totally don't think you want to come to somebody's house like that. I'm laughing to break the tension. This guy seems nervous. He tells me Josh is in the bathroom and doesn't stick around long enough for me to get his full name or ask any questions. So I stand there and wait. So Josh, I'm still here waiting for you. He said he dropped out of high school about the same time Mercy Hospital closed. And he says those two things are related. Today, I'm hoping to get a better understanding of why he connects the two and get his take on the healthcare challenges his family faces. Minutes are passing, and I'm still standing here. When Josh finally walks out of the bathroom, he looks tired. His face has peach fuzz, and his hat is dirty. He slouches into a big chair. Basically, like, uh, people think I'm a drug dealer, or they think I do this, or they think I do that, and all this other stuff, and overall look at me as like I'm this bad person. I mean, I can be nice if you want me to be, but I can be that bad person that you guys are putting me out as if you want me to be. Josh is 17, a high school dropout, with a pit bull mix named Amber sitting at his feet. It's too easy to see a troubled kid, but he is also a teenager who is here for his grandparents. When Ralph's heart started failing, Josh helped out as they shuttled to the next closest hospital and then another. It's one o'clock in the morning. And I have to drive from here to Pittsburgh with my grandma in the car following the ambulance. And when we got to Pittsburgh, the next day, we had to take all of our stuff that we unpacked out of the hotel that we had in Pittsburgh and go straight to Joplin because he was being transported out to Joplin. What followed was weeks of chaos. 
renting hotel rooms in two different towns just to be close to Ralph as he recovered from heart failure. That's when Josh says he dropped out of high school. Pat has emphysema, and Ralph has the bad heart, plus emphysema and failing kidneys. So are you worried about your grandparents right now? Very much so. My grandma, I'm... She sees my grandpa going downhill pretty fast, and she's starting to get where she doesn't wear her oxygen at night, and she's supposed to sleep with her oxygen on, so I have to wake her up and tell her multiple times, hey, put your oxygen on, and halfway through the night, she'll end up taking it off somehow. So it's just getting more and more rough every day. Pat and Ralph took Josh in when he was three years old, and Josh says Pat has been taking pain medicine prescribed by her doctor as long as he can remember. Months after Ralph came home from the hospital, Pat ended up in the emergency room because of the medicine. It was related to that. She had ran out of them, and she needed to... uh, Josh tries to explain it to me. I don't see how they can take somebody taking 20 milligrams of a hydrochloride form of medication with a no-fill and it's straight opiate. But he's speaking a language I do not know. I'm not following you. What are you referring to? So her oxycodones are 20 milligrams. So they're a way higher level of dosage and more medication than what she would, she would be getting more out of taking those to help her. The doctor had adjusted Pat's prescription. But Josh says the change left Pat still needing pain relief. As we talk, I can't tell what medical condition Pat has that requires opioids for pain relief. But it doesn't seem fair to keep talking to a 17-year-old about this or his grandmother. To understand all of this, I really need to come back another time and speak with Pat. Eric Thomason works at the Community Health Center of Southeast Kansas, It's the health clinic that moved into Fort Scott when Mercy Hospital closed. Mercy didn't provide any addiction or behavioral health services. The health center does, and their approach is to treat it just like any other chronic illness. Eric is in charge of those services. I get the privilege of working with hardworking blue-collared folks, and they oftentimes view, you know, depression, anxiety, or bipolar disorder, um, or battles with addiction as a weakness, right? And and there's no hardworking person that wants to just sit here and admit that they have a problem. And so a lot of times we avoid it. And what happens when we avoid chronic illness, regardless of if it's diabetes, hypertension, or depression, is it gets worse. Eric says part of the job is convincing people to feel comfortable enough to come see them. And so a lot of times it's educating uh, society saying, hey, it's not a weakness on your part. You may be depressed for things that are completely outside of your control. The people who struggle with depression or mental health are commonly the same people who reach for alcohol and drugs to cope. The residents of Bourbon County, where Fort Scott is, report some of the highest number of poor mental health days in the state of Kansas. And that's not unusual for people in rural areas across the country. At the same time, it's tough to find help. Rural places often have a shortage of mental health workers, such as psychiatrists and psychologists. When in all reality, you know, the depression, the anxiety, bipolar disorder, the substance abuse problems, they were already there. We were just shining a light on them and trying to address them. 
And these chronic illnesses, Eric says, show up from one generation to the next. I'm a firm believer that people are doing the best they can do with what they know how to do. And so a lot of what they may have seen in their life for coping is substance abuse. They may have had parents uh, who got stuck in that substance abuse cycle and they grew up in that, so they're falling back to things that they observed. Josh does seem to be picking up habits. He smokes, just like both of his grandparents. But when it comes to taking opioids, he says, I won't touch them. I can't do it. I just can't. So you're not going to touch any opioids that are on the street or anywhere else? No. I have that on tape, so you've got to keep with that, okay? (laughs) I will. I want to believe Josh. The reason he moved in with Pat and Ralph when he was three years old is because of opioids. His mom died from an overdose. Pat told me about it, and so did Josh. Josh, though, was young. He's only heard stories. He remembers almost nothing about his mother, not her smell or the color of her hair, her touch, he says. But he does remember seeing her take her pills. The only moment that I can remember is she was sitting in a chair one day and she took her meds. That's about all. I don't even remember her face. It's like she's a blur just sitting there. I found an obit for Josh's mother, who was only 25 when she died. It's hard not to make comparisons to Josh's life. It's heartbreaking. His mom dropped out of Fort Scott High School, too. But the obit says she earned one of the top scores on her GED exam. Josh's dad still lives in Fort Scott, but Pat is his legal guardian. Josh tells me he smokes weed, but he doesn't really consider that a drug. When I ask about his health, he says it's a struggle. To protect his privacy and because he is a minor when we talk, we are not sharing Josh's last name. I mean, there's been points in times where I've been down and out and I've, I've thought of suicide. I've tried to attempt it and I just couldn't go through with it. So, uh, I mean. But how do you go forward and make sure you don't feel like doing that again? And are there any resources in town that you think you could reach out to? Resources. I know I could always talk to him, my friend that's back in the laundry room. and uh, That guy? Maybe Josh can see the question in my eyes because he gets a bit quieter. He assures me that he knows he can always talk with his grandma or walk into the living room and sit down with his grandpa. But as far as making sure it doesn't happen again, uh, some days it's just like that and it, it just hits. I... It's mood swings. I can go from happy to sad to angry in three seconds. What happens when you're angry? I'm just curious. Well, for example, there used to be a picture hanging right there. (laughs) I can can see the outline from the cigarette smoke. uh, Yeah. um, But what happened to that picture? Uh, I got mad enough and nearest thing close to me was that picture in a wall and my hand went into it. Needless to say, I might have had glass sticking out of my hand and yeah, I still pulled it all out and walked down the street. A full beat passes before I can respond. I sense I need to choose my words carefully and I find myself wanting to help him. I want to plant something in Josh's mind before I leave. Well, I was asking about your mom, and we got off on that, but I'm sorry about it all. Um, You know, the new health center has behavioral 
therapist and stuff. Like you could go talk to them. They, they don't cost much money. Would you ever consider something like that? I will say I've went to a therapist before and talked with, about my problems. And the one experience that I learned was they don't, they say that they're helping you, but nine out of 10 chances, they're actually judging you. And I've already said my mental state isn't good enough right now and I have anger issues, temperamental issues, so uh, I, if I go to another one, I could see either somebody making me mad and it going completely bad, or, I mean, it, who knows? I'm a bit scared to leave this boy, this child. I don't want him to do anything to hurt himself. He tells me he's going to stick around. He says he has to. I'm just taking care of my family. I'm doing what I was raised and taught to do. Gotta survive. Family sticks together. Fort Scott has a drug problem, and the city knows it. The local school district passed a mandate last year requiring all high schoolers and middle schoolers to take a drug test. If students don't take the test, they aren't allowed to participate in sports or clubs or even drive to school and park on the property. City manager Dave Martin also told me he purposely promoted a police chief who is really aggressive on drugs. Fort Scott has invested in a narcotics dog. We are making an impact on the drugs. Is it gonna go away? No, I don't think it's going to go away, but we have made, I think, huge impact, especially on the meth issues that we were dealing with as a community. Meth is methamphetamine, a drug that has long ravaged the rural West and Midwest. This year, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said use of meth was soaring again. So I think we still have a ways to go. I don't know, it seems like you get one closed down and then another one opens up or something like that, but that is constantly our focus. And both our sheriff deputies and our police officers have definitely done a lot to uh, hamper the what I consider the drug problem here in Fort Scott. The crass term drug problem hangs in the air between Dave and I. I'm the one that brought it up, and it doesn't feel like it fits when talking about this quaint historic town. When I think about Fort Scott, I picture the good stuff I see on Main Street, antique shops and decorative flags. There's a museum for unsung heroes. When the hospital was around, it didn't help with tackling the drug problem. But Dave says drugs are a health problem and something the community should care about. Yes, if you don't feel good about where you're at or you see no future or you have no desire to have a better future, I would think that would go more towards wanting to self-medicate. Dave Martin is beginning to have a change of heart about the loss of Mercy Hospital. Still not really happy about it, but his tone is changing. He seems less angry. Now he seems thankful, especially that the hospital down the road reopened the emergency department. So I guess I've had time to sit back and reflect on where we're at now um, and realize that 
we could be in a lot worse. We could not have health care at all or emergency room or anything. Um, again, I feel very blessed about where we're at. A couple of incidents have happened to Dave's family that make him feel grateful for the health services that are still in town. His youngest daughter needed the ambulance. His second daughter was pregnant with Dave's second grandchild. And he sees that there are still skilled doctors here to help. Rita Baker reached out to Dave when all of this family stuff happened. Rita is the former president of Mercy Hospital. She's the person who Dave and lots of people in town blamed when the closing was announced. People verbally berated Rita, and she felt alienated. Later, months after Mercy left town, Dave apologized to Rita at a public meeting. He tells me what he said. We both have different responsibilities here. And if I've said anything that offended you, it wasn't meant to be. It's just I have a different role than you do. And she said, I know what you mean. So Rita and I, I would consider a good friend. Rita says the mood in Fort Scott is beginning to shift. Time heals a lot of wounds. And I think the fact that everybody, or at least I hope, I shouldn't use the word everybody, but I think many people in the community that had reservations and doubts about this new model of care are beginning to see that it is effective and that it is working. And I think everybody's relaxing a little bit more. And Dave and I did have a conversation, and it was positive. I think that it's, it's kind of like everybody has to have proof that this is going to work. While some people may be feeling better, Josh and Pat and Ralph are struggling. When I make it back to talk with Pat, I have some tough questions to ask about what Josh told me. He told me about his suicidal thoughts. He talked about his drug use and that he feels responsible for and worried about his grandparents. And I'm back to ask about all of that. And I need to ask Pat about her medication too. Pat says she has restless leg syndrome. She says that's why she takes opioids. Whenever I need to, yeah. Whenever I need to. You darn right I do. Because, I mean, literally, I have knocked Ralph out of the bed before at night. Yeah. He had, I have, in a king-size bed. And Ralph chimes in, saying she kicks her feet. Kick her feet. It hurts clear down to, your in, to the inside of your bones. And you cannot keep your legs still. And then there's other times it feels like that there's centipedes just crawling up on the inside of your legs. And you're going like this, and you know, and you can't keep them still. You know, and so if my medicine is not working, then I have to do something. It's a disease she has struggled with all of her life. And lately, the doctor has been trying to find medicine that helps. There's a lot of stigma attached to pain medication use, particularly opioids. And Pat is aware of that. After all, her daughter-in-law, Josh's mother, died from an overdose. She's quick to tell me it's a prescription from her doctor. Oxycodone is one of the medicines that Pat is prescribed. Researchers are now finding that rural seniors are more likely to be prescribed opioids than those living in urban areas. And in so many families around the nation, opioid prescriptions have led to substance use disorder. There's even concern among experts that the disorder and overdoses from opioids are on the rise in older people nationwide. All of this is on my mind as I speak with Pat. 
every month I do a urine test for drugs. Why would you be doing that? Because that's one of the ways that he makes sure his patients are not abusing drugs, the drugs that he prescribes. Then we talk about the emergency room trip. Like with that episode, I knew it was my legs. I've dealt with them since I've been 13, 14 years old. I recognize them, the old buddies now, you know, after all this time. And it wasn't the medicine because I took some uh, of the uh, oxycodone and it didn't do any good. Did no good whatsoever. None. Didn't even touch it. I look over at Ralph, who's sitting in his chair. What do you think yes. of my questions, Ralph? Uh, what do you think of my questions? They're valid. They're valid. Just go ahead and ask her. Yeah. She'll tell you the truth. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't doubt she's going to tell me the truth of what she's. <laughs> I don't doubt that. She's no. Okay. If I thought I was addicted to the pain medication that I am on, I would. I would have to think long and hard because of Josh. Josh. Pat worries about him. She's talked to me about being able to feed him. He's a teenager and eats a lot. He shouldn't be smoking, and we've talked about what she calls the stray friends he brings home. It's like the place has become a Grand Central Station. She also fought him on dropping out of high school. You know, he's gotten to the age to where, you know, teenagers, of course, know it all. You know, that's just the way it is. They know it all, especially in this day and age. You know, and what's going to become him, I don't know, and that scares me. That scares me to death. The last time I saw Josh was that day we talked about his mom, the same day he talked about punching the wall. That afternoon, I went back to follow up and find Pat. At the house, once again, no one answered. And once again, I'm in a doorway, hesitating. Jesus. Josh is half passed out on a bed that you can see from the front door. I think it's his bedroom. And he only has a pair of shorts on. And he was laying with his feet on the ground and his body backwards on the mattress, face up towards the ceiling. Josh made a noise, a sort of soft grunt or moan. Then his friend came out and told me he was okay. I stood there and asked a couple more times, are you sure he's okay? I'm wavering, but he's breathing and he's not alone. It seems okay, but I don't like seeing that. I don't like seeing that at all. Next time, you'll meet a young mother who returned to Fort Scott after college. So what was your thought process when you heard the hospital was closing? Initially, I cried a lot because I would be losing my job as well as losing a place to have my baby. She's expecting her second child and she's scared. This season of Where It Hurts is hosted and reported by me, Sarah Jane Tribble. Tarina Lofton is our production assistant. Greg Montanu at St. Louis Public Radio is our sound and design mix wizard. Tanya English, managing editor and managing producer for the podcast, is KGN's senior editor for broadcast innovation. 
We are especially grateful to Diane Weber for holding space for this project, which gave us time to learn as we created. She's been this podcast's most constant cheerleader. Diane is KHN's national editor for broadcast and an editorial liaison to the show, along with Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. Special thanks to Carrie Feibel, who listened, coached, and offered great questions as we closed out this season. Season one, No Mercy, is dedicated to my sister Maggie. The podcast is a co-production with St. Louis Public Radio and Kaiser Health News, a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. KHN is an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation.